fitting that we have that song right now because I have nothing else to proclaim to you today than Amazing Grace. Uh, unending love, Amazing Grace. That's what we preach when we preach the Gospels. That's what we preach when we preach Romans. And that's what we preach when we preach Genesis chapter 3. God's Amazing Grace. Let's open in prayer. God, our Father, blessed God of all creation, we worship you today as our creator and as our redeemer. And we ask that you would see fit to please descend and meet us here, unworthy though we are. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I think I can say that we all know, and if you don't, then you will soon that something's wrong in our world. Something has gone badly wrong, and it has messed everything up. You think about starvation across the globe today. You think about thousands of children in third world countries are going to die of preventable, preventable diseases today. And something's wrong. You think about what the murder rate is in various parts of our nation, not to mention the rest of the world. You think about the divorce rate. Half of the people in our world who get married can't stay married. And then you have problems like bullying at school, racism, abortion, greed, and on and on. I mean, I'm just getting started naming the things that we know are bad in our world. Then you have just plain meanness. This week, something happened to Olivia that uh, has never happened to us before. And she got, she was, it's what's called email bombed. Have you ever heard of that? We had never heard of this. Somebody just broke into her email somehow and, and set it up to where she received thousands and thousands of emails. And she has to go through and try to delete all of them. And it was really hard when she read them all. No, I'm kidding. She didn't do that. Uh, and that's just because of people's meanness. And somehow connected to that, we've been getting these random packages from Amazon. If you are in need of a Darth Vader Lego hat, we're your people right now. Somehow that has come to our house. And we don't know what's going on. But somebody just wanted to do something mean. Where does that come from? Why do people just say, we're going to do Mean stuff sometimes. Why do we know that, as it's a, a colloquial saying now, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Why do we know that so many people, if they get power, they're going to become corrupted? Why is it that we know we can't trust our politicians, generally speaking? And you say, well, you can trust me. And I hope that's true. But have you ever wondered what might happen to you if you were given the power? And it's very interesting what Jesus says, or what the, what the gospel says about Jesus. He would not entrust himself to any man. You know that? Because he knew what was in man. You see, what, what the truth is, about our world is that human beings are messed up. But here's the thing. In our world today, at least at the higher levels, 
you cannot say this. People don't believe this. We watched a movie last weekend with our girls called Secondhand Lions. It's an old, old movie. I uh, got Robert Duvall in it, these old, old men. But the, the movie reaches a, a climax where Robert Duvall, the old man, is going to give the young guy a speech. This is his, his big speech. The first thing he says at the significant moment as he's talking to this boy, telling him what he needs to know about life, he says, here's what you need to know. Most people are good. And you probably heard that in, in other settings as well. I was in a gas station where I heard this song several years ago. And, uh, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about goodness, writing about goodness in my academic life. And, and so it, it caught my attention. Uh, it's a country song. And I went and looked it up afterwards. And the song's called, I Believe Most People Are Good. Have you heard that song? Yeah. I believe most people are good. And in a way, it's sentimental. And we want to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to believe that, you know. He says, uh, if I can just read you a couple of lines. I looked it up this week. Uh, I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. Well, okay. That's nice to believe. But why does it look so bad? I believe if you go by the nightly news, your faith in all mankind would be the first thing you'd lose. Now, this is really significant, what he's saying here. Uh, now, the truth is, yeah, the news does report a lot of bad stuff, and it could report more good stuff. We could, we could uh, ask for that. It's not going to happen, but that might be nice. But, but the point is, why does the news have so much bad stuff to report in a world where most people are good, if that's really the truth? You see, what's happened is, having removed God from the picture, this has a history to it, going back uh, a long time now, human beings basically kicking God out of the picture, whether they're becoming atheists or agnostics or just saying he's irrelevant to life, one way or the other, what we've done is we've looked for, we're made for worship, and so we've looked for the next greatest thing, and we've found those who are made in God's image, and that's us, and we've said, we've got to believe in us. And that's why you hear people saying, don't lose faith in the human spirit. Believe in the human spirit. Don't let yourself lose faith in humanity. Why? Because we've already lost faith in God. And we're clinging to ourselves now. And that is a shaky string to be holding on to. There's a guy, you may have heard of him, Russian intellectual named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he had some words that are now famous that he, that he said about this. He commented on good and evil in human beings. He was actually imprisoned for making negative comments about Joseph Stalin and uh, spent years in the Russian gulag. And he had formerly been, if I'm not mistaken, a decorated general in the Russian military. But listen to what he says about his realization while he was in the gulag. In the intoxication of youthful successes, I had felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. In the surfeit of power, I was a murderer and a, an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul, if you know his story. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good. And I was well supplied with systematic arguments. And it was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw, 
that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil, listen to this, passes not through states, nor through classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. And you see what Solzhenitsyn realized? He realized that evil is not something out there, but something in here. Evil is not something, as he says in another place, it would be nice if we could just lump all the evil persons right here and get rid of them. Say, oh, there they are. There's all the evil people. But you can't do that. Because Solzhenitsyn came to discover that evil had been in himself and still was in himself. If you've ever heard anybody talk about this or just reflected on yourself, all the Nazi soldiers who gave their lives over to serving Hitler, have you ever just thought about how before that happened they were probably pretty normal people? Probably respected soldiers. Many of them may have been courageous, willing to to die for what they thought were good causes. And yet somehow evil came along and grabbed a hold of them and carried them along with that tidal wave. And they were caught up in it as well. And this is the story of humanity historically. Evil taking hold of us and moving us along. Yet today, we cannot even speak the words to say that human beings have a problem with evil, have a problem with sin. And therefore, like going to the doctor but refusing to talk about what the actual problems are, we cannot get the help we need. Maybe you've done that. We, because we're made in the image of God, we want to do good and we want to fix the problems. This this is the irony of it all. We want to fix the problems and yet we have such a hard time admitting that we are a part of the problem. This is what honest people historically have to to admit. G.K. Chesterton answered, uh, I believe it was a write-in, I'm going from memory here, a write-in to a newspaper Years ago, somebody had just written, what's wrong with the world? Very tersely. And Chesterton responded, I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. But you see, it was a profound response. What he was getting at was, we cannot escape ourselves being a part of the problem. You see, having abandoned God as a great authority as the standard of goodness. We look to ourselves for goodness. We want to define goodness by ourselves. We wanted to, to say what's right and wrong according to ourselves. And then whatever problems are there, we want to say there are human solutions to them. The primary one we present and has been presented through the, through the ages now is education. Well, if you just educate people rightly, you'll fix the problem. Dwight Moody, the Christian preacher years ago, saw through this. He said, if you educate a rail thief, he will steal the whole railroad. If you get Broken, sinful people smarter, they will come up with smarter ways to do worse things. And again, I believe it was Chesterton who said this a long time ago, the doctrine of of original sin, as we're talking about right now, is the most empirically demonstrable doctrine of the Christian faith, and yet it's the most commonly denied. We're not talking about something I have to debate really up here. We can just do history. And not only do we just do history, we can just talk about your family. Or my family. Because we know the reality of sin and evil. You know it and I know it. Even if we try 
to avoid it sometimes. Today we learn what went wrong with the world. And Steve has already immersed us in this text so wonderfully. Uh, we won't have to say all that we might have needed to say, uh, thanks, thanks to Steve. But we'll just get into these verses and see what the Lord gives us here in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty. Notice that term, crafty. It's a term connected with wisdom in the scriptures. And we're going to see that wisdom is at issue here in this text. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, in Christian history, the serpent becomes Satan. Right here when it's first written, that's not what everybody was thinking. It's not like they, they had that. It's not obvious in the text there. But then interpreted later, we come to see this as, as Satan. And I will say Steve's commented on this. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I've made comments uh, along these lines in both of my previous talks on Genesis 1 and 2. There's room at the table. There's room at the Christian table for people to disagree over passages like this on whether you take them strictly literally or in a more figurative way, or whether it's some kind of combination. What we don't want to do is miss the point, because whether you take these passages to be more literal or more figurative, either way, they're making deeper points, as Steve was mentioning just a little bit ago. We're paying attention to the major points today, not debating literal versus figurative, okay? And so here, here's what, we, what you have. You have the serpent here, more crafty than the other beasts of the field, and he said to the woman, did God actually say... And I want you to know that we have here a general pattern of temptation that's brilliantly captured here in this story that's passed down through the ages. He starts by questioning God. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I don't know why he says that because that's not what God says. That's not what Eden thinks. He says, did God not say, you did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree? No, God had not said that. I wonder if he's just trying to stir the pot. <laughs> you start right there by saying, let's be skeptical about God. Let's see how much you'll bite on here as we throw things out there about God. And then Eve makes her first mistake. Rather than commanding the serpent to be gone, she starts to reason with him. And she moved from obedience to analysis. And that's what we do sometimes when we want to sin. Instead of doing what we know already is very clearly right, we start reasoning about it. And that was her first mistake. Let me analyze this. Let me wrestle with these ideas with you. And she says, no, he didn't say that. He said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees, this is verse 2, in the garden. But God said, I'm sorry. Yeah, the woman said to the servant, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now notice that little phrase, neither shall you touch it. You may have noticed in Genesis 1 to 2, you don't get that phrase. When God tells them not to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, he does not say, neither shall you touch it. And you have to wonder, now we can't say this for sure, but you have to wonder if uh, Eve has done what many of us have done throughout history and started building a fence around the law. Or maybe Adam told her, we can't even touch it. <laughs> Stay away from it. That's not what God said. He said, just don't eat of it. But see, this is our tendency. It's a legalistic tendency. Historically, it's born out among God's people, among the Jewish people, and among Christians, where we say, that's wrong. Uh-oh, this is wrong here. And we could spend a lot more time talking about this. I think this is a, 
a problem because the moment we start making God more restrictive than he actually is, we end up making temptation more powerful than it should be. And we end up devoting attention to resisting things we don't even have to worry about resisting. And that zaps our energy. We don't have time to get into that right now. But just, just note that it may be they're already making laws as the, the human tendency, the religious person's tendency is. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And that word surely there, arguably it should be translated immediately. Now I say that to you because uh, if you notice the next line, for God knows that when you're, you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, actually, if you, if you read the rest of the text, the, the scripture bears that out. The serpent told the truth. <laughs> their eyes were opened in one sense. It didn't lead to what they were hoping for, but their eyes were opened. And it may be here that, that the serpent is saying something true also. You will not immediately die. And you will have your eyes opened. But he's deceiving them with truth. That's the way Satan still works, by the way. He takes some truth... If it were just totally, completely false stuff that he always threw at us, we would catch on. But he mixes truth with it and gets us to question God. And this is the fundamental problem. This is the human problem. We start questioning the goodness of God. One Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, has identified three, I guess you'd say, tasks that are given to the human being or functions of the human being, something along those lines. He says, first, they're given permission. Permission to eat of any tree in the garden. Then they're given a vocation. They're given a, a beautiful calling to care for the garden and to care for the animals. And then they're given a prohibition. And he said, don't eat of this one tree. You know what the serpent does? The serpent takes their attention and narrows it down to this one prohibition. <laughs> And says, did he really say that? He gets their attention focused on that one thing they can't have. And in that moment, they start to question the goodness of God. He makes God out to be a God of prohibition rather than a God of permission. And a God of vocation and calling. What he could have said was, did God actually say you can eat of any tree in the garden? Except one? Man, he must really love you. Did God actually choose you to rule over this beautiful creation? To be his priestly representative here in this beautiful creation? Is that what God did for you? But you know, Satan's job is to get our attention off of the goodness of God and on to these prohibitions, making God seem like he's against us, like he can't be trusted. Oh, did God really say you can't sleep with whoever you want to? Did God really say you can't hate your brother or your sister? Is God really keeping good things from you? Why would he do that? And then we, in our blindness, we start to listen. And we stop paying attention to the goodness that surrounds us. And I hope you understand as we're, as we're teaching through Genesis 1 through 3, what I want us to center on is the greatness of God, the kindness of God. That's what we often miss in these texts. God is the one who gives and gives and gives. And we get our attention on these 
things that we think he's keeping from us. And we don't realize that the fact that we got up in the morning and breathed the air was God's gift. We were breathing God's air, not our air. And we get mad at God and we say, I'm so mad. He won't give me what I want. I'm going to go get me a cheeseburger that God has made me to enjoy. You see, this is the blindness that comes through our temptations. The blindness that comes to us naturally through the fall into sin. We have to understand as Christians, as people who want to live for Christ, that believing in the goodness of God is central to living for God. We're not living for somebody who's against us. We're living for somebody who's for us. And our struggle against temptation will be overwhelming if we don't understand that. Your faith in God will not do you that much good if you don't have a vision of the goodness of God. In fact, I would say you don't really believe in God as God is if you don't believe in his goodness. His goodness to you personally. Satan came and blinded, the serpent came and blinded Adam and Eve to this. And that leads them in to temptation and sin. Let me ask you, have you been turning your attention to the things that God forbids? Have you been sitting around and saying to yourself, why can't I have that? And walking down this road that says, you know I may have to look out for myself. If that's been you, you have lost sight of who God is. And that's exactly what your enemy would like for you to do. God is the good one. He's the standard of goodness. And when we say that, we're not saying something incomprehensible. We're saying he is good as we understand goodness. Beyond and better than that, but, but good. See, sin and temptation is really about God and us. We tend to think of it sometimes about our will versus temptation and sin over here. And we've got to battle it out. But we forget that God's always the third party in that. And what happens in sin is a broken relationship with the God who loves us. Okay, I have to move on. The last phrase there, you might be wondering about knowing good and evil. I mean, didn't they know some good things? Didn't they know it was good to do what God said and, and bad not to do what God said? Well, yeah, that's true. Two, two ways to think of that. One is that he's talking about experience. Knowledge in the biblical world meant experience, and they entered more deeply into experience when they actually began to sin. The other thing to become aware of is that uh, we're talking here about it, maybe a summary of wisdom, and even though they knew some good things or evil things, they didn't have the wisdom, the, the full knowledge or, or a much greater knowledge of good and evil that would come to them over time. So, so don't press that phrase too hard. It will fall apart. What I want you to notice is that this is not just some silly rule that God has given them. When you understand that this tree is the, the, the representative of, of wisdom to them, God was meant to be the source of wisdom. 
Its tree is the representative of, of understanding moral right and wrong. God was meant to be the one who directed them into what, what, what was right and what's wrong. This is meant to be the center of the universe, grounding us in God. And what the original humans did in rebelling was, was they, they said, we're going to be God. We're going to be independent. We're going to establish our moral independence. We're going to be the center of the universe. This is the big deal. This is why things get broken. It's not that people were struggling a little bit in some way where we all make mistakes and then God just got upset. It's that there was a setup where human beings were meant to function in an order. There was God and there were human beings ruling with God. And they broke that. They said, no, whatever it was that happened, however you understand it, more literally, more figuratively, something broke substantially in the relationship with God as human beings grasped for their own place, their own power, their own wisdom. This is what set everything off the wrong direction. In a way, they said, we will take the place of God. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and it was desired to make one wise, I've heard it said that... Uh, you have here what's represented in 1 John chapter 2 for sin. There are three things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, it's good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was delightful to their eyes. And the pride of life, desired to make them wise. And these three things still come at us today. We want things to satisfy our appetites. Things that look appealing to us. We want to possess ways that we want to be above others. We want our own wisdom to be established. And so she took it and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then their eyes were opened. That's what the serpent had said. Their eyes were opened yet it didn't lead to what they had hoped for and they knew they were naked. Now that's just weird to us. It's awkward. Why is the big deal about nakedness right there in the the middle of the Bible, but I think it points to something deep about human relationships. Before this happened, they were able to be intimate, vulnerable, and open, and it was not a problem. And this text is explaining to us what has gone wrong in human relationships. Suddenly, shame enters the picture. Embarrassment, distance from others, a need to hold each other at arm's length. And today, human relationships are hard. Do you know that? Not just marital relationships. Those are easy. <laughs> Some of you were not listening. <laughs> but human relationships in general are hard. There's been something broken from the beginning, and this text is explaining to us why. This harmony of God and us and each other was snapped so they made fig leaves for themselves, and then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking. Again, this is the place where I'd have to say most of us believe there's some figurative elements in this text. Most of us don't picture God with, with legs walking through the garden. But the point is he was present there. And he comes, and now you have hiding. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You have distance from each other. You have hiding from God that enters with sin. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And now you have fear. Not healthy reverence for God. You know, there is the fear of the Lord in Scripture. But we were not meant to have that kind of fear from the one who wants to come and take a walk with us in the garden. That something has been messed up. 
something has been broken in the relationship with God. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Blaming begins. We all know how this goes. And Adam manages to blame both Eve and God in the same sentence. (laughs) The woman whom you gave to be with me, she's the one responsible. She gave it to me. You'll notice in a minute that God doesn't let him off the hook so easily. But the Lord God says then to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman says, well, the serpent. (laughs) The serpent deceived me and I ate. You got to hand it to the serpent. At least he doesn't blame anybody. (laughs) One good thing about the serpent, we can say. He doesn't blame anybody. And ever since that time, human beings have been trying to pass off our guilt, our responsibility to others. Maybe it's an opportunity for you this morning to reflect and just ask yourself, uh, have you been accepting responsibility for your own sins? I'm skipping the serpent, and we'll come back to the serpent. I'm going to move quickly here. I don't want to take too much time. But he said to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. And that word there seems to mean emotional pain more so than physical pain. And the pain that whatever would have been there is increased now. And if you, you can't help but wonder if you know the history of the world, how uh, up until fairly recently, I think the most common death for women in the world was in childbearing. Pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. And that word, we might translate it, desire to control. At least arguably that's the translation or the meaning. Your desire, I think it fits well with the context. If you, if you, if you see this, it's not necessarily a romantic desire here. Um, but your desire to control. You shall have a desire to control your husband, but it's not going to work. He's going to rule over you as the physically stronger one, generally speaking. The husband's going to rule over you, and, and we can look at the history of the world and see that that has happened. There, there was suddenly, in this intimate relationship, this relationship of mutuality, of co-ruling and reigning, as we talked about last week, suddenly there becomes a break in this relationship. And there's a battle for control. And the woman lost. And what you have in terms of the curse is you have a reversal of blessings. The woman was blessed to be the mother of all the living. Now that's reversed. It becomes a, a time of pain. Not completely because it's still great joy, but, but it becomes a, a, a pain and suffering. And the home the woman created to be the perfect helpmate, as we talked, help meet, help her fit for the man, as we talked about last week. And instead, now there's a break in that relationship. The reversal of the blessing that comes here uh, in this curse. I have to say that this is not what happens because God created it this way. This is what happens because of sin. This is what happens because we messed the world up. And the marital relationship gets way out of balance then. Man, there's so much. We could just take any one of these things and just talk for a long time about it. We just have to go quickly. To Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. Now, now notice that phrase. That phrase we tend to think of as, oh man, you have to work hard. But I don't think that's what it actually meant. It's actually a Hebrew idiom meaning anxiety. He's saying, in anxiousness, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. You see, hard work is not a curse. Hard work is a blessing. But the anxiety that accompanies it now, whereas before Adam just worked, he could just plant something and it grew just like he wanted it to do. Now all of a sudden he doesn't know. Is it going to work out? Is the rain going to be enough? Is the rain going to be too much? Is the weather, is it going to freeze before it needs to freeze? Anybody who farms knows about these kinds of questions. Now suddenly we're in a world where we're saying, are we going to be able to pay the bills? Are we going to be able to make ends meet? And this anxiety has accompanied human work throughout history now. For out of it you were taken, out of the ground you were taken. This is the last piece of this curse. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And there you get death. Not immediate death, but you're going to die. And now you get to the serpent. And we're going to finish talking about the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Some people believe that the serpent initially was standing on legs, a different kind of creature. Brother Terry's talked to some about that, I think, in the first week of our, our uh, class. Uh, possibly, that, that, that's possibly true. Whatever the case, you get this curse on the, the serpent that he goes on his belly. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or, or some translations have you shall he shall crush your head. And now initially all this is is a, an explanation for why we hate snakes, right? <laughs> that, that's what it seems to be initially. I'll tell you one of the bravest things I've ever done. I slapped the tail of a rattlesnake. I did. I, it was, uh, we were on a walk. Sydney was a little girl. She was afraid. And this snake was stretched out on the road in front of us. And I walked up behind it. And uh, speaking of wisdom today, I walked up behind the rattlesnake and I slapped its tail. I said, get out of here. I didn't actually talk to it, but it got off the road. Now, actually, I've watched enough of these animal shows to know that if a snake is stretched out like this and I slap it on this tail, it's not going to jump up and bite me, spin around. So I, I knew I was safe. All right? <clears throat> Snakes are scary, right? We know that. And that's what this text is initially uh, showing us. It's just showing how the world is kind of like it is. And uh, there's enmity between snakes and human beings. But God also was planting a clue here for us that Christians were able to recognize later on. When he put enmity between the woman and her offspring and the serpent, he was putting enmity between the serpent, between Satan and humanity. But he was also right at that moment saying, I'm going to do something about this. And there's going to be an offspring of this woman who's going to crush your head. From the very moment 
of this curse, you have God planning for redemption. And eventually we see the offspring of Eve in Jesus Christ coming and crushing the head of the snake. The, the punishment, by the way, is merciful already. As uh, Walter Brueggemann says, the, the guy I mentioned a little while ago, the miracle is not that Adam and Eve die. The miracle is that they live. I mean, they had rebelled against God, living in total freedom with him. It's a miracle that he's so merciful even in the punishment. But even then, that's not enough. He says, I'm going to undo this. I'm going to fix this whole thing. And he plants it right there in the text from the very beginning. And says, there's coming a time when I'm going to fix it all. See, the center of our story, brothers and sisters, is not the serpent, not Satan, not sin, not us. The center of our story is our Savior, the one who has crushed the head of Satan and has delivered us from our sins. I want to read to you from Romans 5 here. This is talking about the, the second Adam here, Jesus. The free gift is not like the trespass of Adam. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. That means he's set everything right. He's declared us right in God's eyes. He's put us in right standing with God. He's straightened us up to walk with God. And the condemnation that came through the sin entering our world is, is now being addressed by God's Son, the second Adam. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That is the answer that was planted right there in Genesis 3. The one man who was coming, the second Adam was coming, and he was going to bring justification and life to all of his people, to all who would receive it. The sin that runs so deeply inside us has one solution. And it's not for us to try harder, to do our homework better, to be more prepared, the sin that runs deeply inside us has a solution in God's man, the man of heaven, not the man of earth, who has come and died for our sins. Listen to Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the victory that Jesus Christ brings to us. I invite the praise team to come on up now. And uh, we're going to talk here, we're going to sing here about this victory that makes it well with our soul. And I want you to hear the words that we sing. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not the part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, 
and I bear it no more. That's the victory that we find. Even as we talk about the curse of sin, the evil that is in our world, there is an answer to it. And the answer is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.